I'm Chuck Walters. And I'm Taylor Walters. And this is Limited Hangouts. Today we are going to hear a, a dastardly tale, Taylor. You're going to tell me a dastardly tale. I'm going to sit back and listen. You've already made your case in part one, why the CIA would want to kill Kennedy. Uh, today what are we going to We're going to talk about Oswald a lot, aren't we? Yeah, we are going to follow Lee Harvey Oswald, who is presented by the Warren Commission as the assumed lone gunman assassin of John F. Kennedy. I am going to present uh, Lee Oswald's path. You take issue with that, right? I do. I think that uh, it's pretty laughable, and you'd have to ignore a lot of coincidences to accept that at face value. Okay. Well, why don't you, because I, I'm just a guy, I'm an old guy, I read the commission report, I believe it's gospel, so why don't I, you I find me? it hard to believe you read the entire commission report, but Warren commission? I'll take your word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I I've read parts like of, actually, I've read parts of the Warren Commission report. I don't know if anyone's read the whole thing. You know me, I like to stay informed. When Obama passed Obamacare, I read the whole damn act. Oh yeah, the whole 20,000 page document? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to know what they were voting on. Well, thanks for doing your civic duty. Oh, I like to consider myself Patriot Day. So, <laughs> so I've read right. parts of the commission, Warren Commission report, and they just, they don't, they're nonsensical. However, no, they're, I, I will go with, that is uh, the best thing that we have. So I'm going to let you convince me differently. Okay. Well, most, uh, I should say, most of this research for this episode came from a book called JFK and the Unspeakable, which I would say is probably the best document we have researching the Kennedy assassination. It's written by a guy named James W. Douglas, and uh, I would recommend that you read this if you're really interested in this, or you think I'm full of shit. You can look at all the notations. This, most of this is not based on any kind of speculation. We're only presenting things that are pretty solidly confirmed factually, whether revealed in uh, CIA memorandums, testimonies, or witness statements, investigative reports. Okay, so we're going to start off with Lee Harvey Oswald. And he, in this book, he really didn't... This book's kind of peculiar because I, I didn't read the entire book, but I did look at it. And the book is really very much just what you said, a compilation of release documents, uh, memorandums, and testimony. So it's not yeah. like he went out and wrote this whole theory. He just gathered up a bunch of stuff that was out there. And said, no, and there's not going to be a lot of solid answers for the exact way things went down. I don't think we'll ever really know exactly even who the gunman was who killed Kennedy, but I don't think those details are as important as understanding that this thing was orchestrated and planned and it was not the work of a lone gunman. The Warren Commission presents Lee Harvey Oswald as this disenchanted young man who is angry at the world, uh, didn't fit in after, didn't fit in in, in the army and in the Marines, I mean, and turned that anger into a hatred for America, which manifested as belief in communism. And that uh, drove him to kill Kennedy, and it was more based on a desire for him to earn his place in history and feel like he, he made, a, made a mark on the world. They don't really present a very logically coherent 
motive for that, because as we said before, anyone paying attention would have known that Kennedy was actually a lot less harsh and a lot more open to tolerating communism, call it communism's coexistence with capitalism. So any pro-Castro communist vigilante would actually see Kennedy as probably their best chance for surviving. Well, and in the Warren Commission report, basically the explanation that's given was that Oswald is denied entry into Cuba. So their explanation is if he kills Kennedy, he is going to return to Cuba a hero for killing Kennedy. And the last thing in the world Russia or Cuba wanted was to be associated in any way with the killing exactly. of Kennedy. And we'll get into that uh, right. further down the road. So let's begin with Lee Oswald as a Marine in the, the uh, Tokyo base. He, uh, he's a Marine who's working on the U-2 spy plane. He's not himself an engineer. He probably doesn't have that much of a scientific background, but he knew enough of the project to be granted a crypto clearance, which is higher than top secret. Basically, he, had the, he was in the presence of military secrets that were incredibly dangerous if they were ever released to the enemies, especially with the U-2 spy plane, which the United States was using to photograph stockpiles secretly without Russians aware of it because it was able to fly low and undetected with the new technology of the U-2 spy plane. He's there for a few years at that base until he decides to defect to the Soviet Union, where in Moscow, he announces to both the American embassy and the Soviet consulate there that he is intending to stay in Russia, turn his back on the United States, and provide Top secret military information to the Russians, which he has, which he's privy to, as having had this crypto clearance on the U2 base in Tokyo. He's roaming around. He's trying to marry a bunch of women. He gets engaged a few times, I think, and they they fall through until he until he meets a woman named Marina. And by all accounts, they actually have a pretty decent, loving relationship. Apparently, no one really listens to him in Soviet Russia, and he gets pretty fed up and decides he actually wants to return to the United States about two years later. Somehow he makes it back into the United States and is even granted an overnight visa where he, with his wife Marina, goes to Hoboken, New Jersey before settling in Fort Worth, Texas, where he's introduced to a man named George de Morenschild. And let uh, me, this is an can I stop name. you and interrupt something? Yeah. For him to go to Russia, take these documents, and then come back. Well, first of all, to get the get the overnight visa that he did was extraordinary. It is. I mean, that would be something that I think you and I would have an incredibly difficult time with going anywhere yeah. in that country. I mean, I went to Vietnam. It took, I think, it took two weeks for them to approve my travel visa. My trip was going to be, I think, three months in the future. Well, you're a little sketchy. Um, and, but... and I didn't defect to the United States from Vietnam during <laughs> <Right>. the war. <laughs> yeah, so just the fact that he wasn't arrested and shot when he came back is pretty extraordinary. It is. I think you could either look at that as a massive oversight or possibly a hint to something that we'll see in the future. Okay. But taking the Warren Commission for its word, um, we'll ignore that for now. Okay. 
So Oswald is introduced to George de Morenschild, who is a wealthy baron. He's actually the son of an ex-Czarist official and has ties to the white Russian community in Dallas. The white Russians were essentially exiles from the Soviet Union. They were loyal to the Tsarist regimes, and they fled the Soviet Union once the communists had taken over. So this uh, George de Morenschild really falls in love with Lee and his wife Marina. They get him a job with a map-making commercial photography firm in Texas, which interestingly enough has a military contract, and Lee ends up making maps which serve for the logistic missions of the U-2 spy planes that he had been working on in Tokyo. That's just an interesting asterisk. Uh, I don't know how much we, ha- we can make about that for now, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting coincidence. After working there for a while, Oswald leaves by himself. He moves to New Orleans alone. It's never, really, it's never really been presented why he decided to leave his family and look for work in New Orleans, when by all means he was uh, doing fine in Dallas uh, with his job there. But anyway, he decides he needs to go settle down, find a better job in New Orleans, while he leaves his wife and their kid with the Demorenshilds in Dallas. Oswald gets a job working for a coffee company, And also, he gets additional work for a guy named Guy Bannister, who runs a detective, a private detective agency, and he's in the office, in and out, doing a bunch of odd jobs. It's never really clearly disclosed exactly what he did there, but he was doing that to make extra money. While he's in New Orleans, he draws a lot of attention to himself by making pro-Castro demonstrations. He's out in public with uh, flyers for the Fair Play Committee for Cuba, which is an organization that attempted to make a case for Castro to Americans and ease the relationship. He's actually arrested in one of these demonstrations before he's released because the public, some members of the public and anti-Castro activists are really heated. He's really making a spectacle of himself, and he really provokes them. Eventually, he goes on a radio show to debate with anti-Castro activists, and on that radio show, the radio host reveals to the public that Lee Harvey Oswald had defected to the Soviet Union before. And it really took the wind out of his argument because now everybody knows this guy is an actual traitor. And it actually, it did a lot to discredit the fair play for Cuba committee because he had so publicly associated with him, himself with it and then was revealed to be Soviet traitor. So that also ends up, again, like what you were talking about, it ends up making a case that to possibly set up Cuba as a scapegoat once the assassination of Kennedy goes down, because it, it again, it ties Oswald closer and closer to Cuba, when in fact, it's probably unlikely that he had any relationship with them at all. And to go back, this is, we're not talking about a kinder, gentler FBI and CIA back in those days. So no. if you were to go to Cuba, defect, and then come back, and then be walking the streets, you know, because this is the, during the, the Red Scare, right? If you're going to be walking the streets and going on radio programs and, and making the case for a communist Cuba and Castro, that's, that, you're on pretty thin ice. So to just live a normal life of doing that, Again, it's pretty extraordinary. Especially when you're 
aggressively making yourself a public figure by being in the streets of New Orleans, provoking people for for Castro. Exactly. Um, So, yeah, yeah, none of that really, that is part of it that really, really never made sense to me. No, you'd have to believe that Oswald was a really lucky guy up until the assassination. Right. At that point. So while Lee is in New Orleans, Marina, George de Morenchild actually leaves for Haiti because he's, through the help of the American embassy, got an oil exploration deal with Haiti at the time. Remember, George de Morenchild is the Russian oil baron who introduced Lee and his wife to the white Russian community in Texas. Right. So while de Morenchild leaves, he, introduce, he introduces them to a couple, Ruth and Michael Payne. Again, Ruth and Michael Payne just apparently love Lee and Marina so much that they actually invite them to live with them at their ho- in their home in Dallas. And Ruth Payne actually hooks up Oswald with a job on the sixth floor of the book depository in Dallas. So, yeah, she was really looking out for him, and she gave him, apparently, so unknowingly, a perfect perch to assassinate the president on his trip to Dallas in November. Right. It's okay, a lucky so coincidence. Things are working out lucky well coincidences. for Lee. Things are going well for the plan. He wasn't especially handsome guy, so it's no. nice that he had some good luck. Yeah, people just apparently really, really felt attracted to him for some reason. I think he was like 5'4", too. And nobody Short liked King. him. That, that's the thing. Nobody liked him. For him to be getting, getting all these breaks... Is pretty extraordinary for a guy that you really have committed treason against your country, left, come back, and everybody embraces you with open arms. And you're not yeah. a handsome man. Yeah, and this is before Facebook, too. So <laughs> exactly. This is just him walking around. People are just falling in love with him on the street, inviting them to live in their homes, apparently, wherever he goes. Right. Okay, so things start to heat up a little bit at this point. In October 1963, after Oswald has moved back to D- Dallas, The CIA intercepts a transcript and surveillance photos of a man identifying himself as Oswald at the Soviet consulate in Mexico City. The CIA had a base in Mexico City where they kept eyes on the Soviet and Cuban embassies. They were surveilling them and they likely knew anyone who approached it in keeping their eyes out for possible spies, possible people that wanted to defect. So they received this transcript and surveillance photos of Lee meeting with a known KGB terrorist, Valery Kostikov. Kostikov had done a lot of work bombing various people in Latin America and was known as kind of an equivalent of Osama bin Laden today. Obviously, I don't think at the scale of that, I'm not comparing him, but in terms of the watch list on the FBI and the CIA, Kostikov was a guy that they were keeping a lot of eyes on. and. Anyone meeting with Kostikov and seeking him out would set off alarm bells. So Oswald here is clearly indicating that he has some kind of plan in the works. Around that time, Oswald begins making a lot of impressions himself in Dallas. This is also in October, September, and November. He's recognized after the assassination by people who who know that he killed the president and they come forward and say hey i saw that guy he was acting weird you know all over the place he was at a gun shop buying ammo where he announced himself as a marine and was just really harsh and made a spectacle of himself was really rude everyone in the gun shop recognized him 
at a at a firing range, he starts shooting at other people's targets. In another instance, he goes to look at a car and then recklessly test drives it. Afterwards, he gets out of the car, says fuck you, basically, and he says he can't afford it until he gets more money from Russia. <laughs> Finally, this guy, Wayne January, witnesses him trying to charter a plane and asking a bunch of questions that lead him to believe he wants to hijack the plane to Cuba, and he refuses to charter the plane to him because he's so obviously overtly suspicious. It's almost like one of those deals where if your wife is going to be killed at between 8 and 10 o'clock, you're going out to restaurants and bars and making as big a scene as you can so you can come back and say... Right. Right. Setting up as many right. alibis. And it's curious because, again, if this was a guy that had a plan to secretly kill the president, a lone gunman who wanted You'd to kill... You'd want to be flying under the radar. Yeah, there would be no reason to alert yourself to anyone at all. I mean, I guess the Warren Commission wants to, you to believe that this guy really was this egomaniac that wanted his place in history, and I think that would be their explanation for this. For now, we'll, we'll take their word for it. Okay. In the days leading up to the assassination, Lee's co-worker reports picking him up for work after he asked him to. And while he's getting a ride, the co-worker notices that Lee is carrying a large two-meter package. When he asks him what it is, he says it's a package of curtain rods, which Lee then brings into the book depository. On November 22nd, the fateful day, Oswald apparently fires from the sixth floor of the book depository using that package of curtain rods, uh, <laughs> which probably wasn't curtain rods. He escapes into the Texas theater where he's arrested by Dallas police, but not before killing the officer J.D. Tippett, a police, a Dallas officer who was suspicious of him and came in contact with Lee while he was escaping. Lee shot him with a handgun, apparently. He's led into police custody. He fired three shots from the, from the book depository, correct? Three shots that they have had a hard time replicating. Yes, yeah. yes. We will get into that later. As well, uh, for now, right. we are taking the Warren Commission as a Bible. Right. So, again, before he escapes into the Texas theater and he's arrested by Dallas police, he kills Officer J.D. Tippett. So Oswald has now killed two people on this day in Texas. When he's in police custody, he attempts to make a call that no one answers before being transferred to another station where he's shot and killed by Jack Ruby who is a New Orleans, or I'm sorry, a Dallas nightclub owner, somewhat of a media figure. He's kind of a shady guy. Apparently, Jack Ruby says that he killed Oswald in a moment of passion, believing that he did not, he did not want Jackie Kennedy to have to return to Dallas and, and deal with the criminal proceedings. He, he did it for her, uh, supposedly. It was very kind of him, actually. Yeah. He's a good guy, Jack Ruby. Yeah, he was a super kind guy. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, yeah, after Oswald is killed, there's not really a need for further investigation. The public pretty much has him, in their eyes, as dead to rights, and everything is wrapped up cleanly. The Warren Commission that investigates this later, like we said, uh, doesn't offer a lot of answers. Alan Dulles himself is actually involved in overseeing parts of the commission, Alan Dulles being the criminal mastermind of the CIA. So it's a little bit, what's the metaphor, the... Uh, the fuck, the wolf in the sheep's den, I guess. Um, yeah, it's a little, it's a little. The fox curious. was investigating. They they put the fox in charge of the hen house there. Yeah. So now that we've kind of gone through a general summary of 
Lee Oswald's trip, his path from uh, an ex-Marine disaffected Soviet traitor to his return to Texas, where he makes friends with the white Russians, and then ultimately kills the president, we're going to look back and poke some holes into that. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to go off and say it is pretty much a guaranteed fact that Lee Oswald himself was actually a CIA agent. One of the, uh, to kind of set this, uh, another interesting coincidence occurred in 1959, the same year that Oswald defects to the Soviet Union. There's an ex-CIA agent, Victor Marchetti, who wrote a book called Cult of Intelligence. He was a disillusioned CIA agent who really started to realize that the CIA was not serving any honorable purpose in the world, and he, and he defected, and he wrote this book. It's, it's amazing to me that this guy was not assassinated, but we'll probably talk about that book in further episodes. But anyway, same year that Oswald defects to the Soviet Union, Victor Marchetti reveals that the CIA had a program to send disenchanted youths to Russia to try to get recruited as double agents. So that he says at the time that Oswald was defected to Russia, they were sending about 30 to 40 ex-Marines and, and even citizens to Russia to try to, to get Russia to, to bite the bait and establish a presence of double agents in Russia. Overall, this was actually horribly ineffective. The Americans throughout the Cold War proved to be terrible at counterintelligence terrible at, at covert operations. At any given time, the Russians were a lot more successful in infiltrating the American government while, while the Americans themselves had barely a base of any kind of reliable spy network set up in Russia at the time. So this points to Oswald. I mean, it's another remarkable coincidence that the year that this program starts up, Oswald defects to the Soviet Union and it might explain why he was so easily welcomed back into the United States. Yeah, that makes sense. Some more direct evidence, if you don't want to take that uh, coincidence so seriously, there is a CIA former financial officer, his name was Jim Wilcott, and he actually worked at the CIA with his wife, Elsie. In the 70s, when the church, the church committee was investigating the CIA and looking into the assassination again, they left the CIA, again, like Marchetti, Marchetti, they were disillusioned and believed that they were actually causing more harm in the world than, than saving Americans. Jim Wilcott confirmed that Lee himself was a CIA agent and admitted to having paid Oswald through a cryptogram and that it was common knowledge that he was a CIA officer at the Tokyo base that Oswald had worked at as a Marine closely with. So Wilcott himself didn't even know Oswald was a CIA agent and was skeptical of it, but he was shocked by the fact that everyone at the base, the CIA base in Tokyo, knew that as soon as Oswald was arrested, that Oswald was CIA. And to confirm it, the CIA officer provided that, that made the claim that Lee was CIA the whole time provided the cryptogam to Jim Wilcott, which was used to pay Lee Harvey Oswald. So Jim Wilcott was paying this guy had been paying Oswald without knowing it because the identities are protected by these cryptograms and the agent correctly identified that cryptogram as Oswald's. He would have no reason to know that unless he knew it was Oswald. The other thing, just to, go, just to jump back a little bit, the information that Lee Harvey Oswald defected with, the information about the U-2 spy plane, by that time, Russia already knew about the U-2 spy plane. Yes. 
So he wasn't giving, giving them anything well, new. Actually, so in the first six months that Oswald was in Russia, they actually shot down the first Soviet spy plane. So it's another remarkable thing right. where if, you, if anyone were to believe that Oswald actually defected to the Soviet Union, a likely conclusion would be that he actually provided them information that enabled them to shoot this plane down. So it's further right. complicates the idea that he would be able to get back into the United States so easily because basically for all they know, he's a confirmed terrorist. Which is, it, it, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but it's a funny story that when the plane got shot down, they told the president, don't worry about it, these planes are meant to self-destruct, <laughs> which I believe all planes self-destruct when they yeah. hit the ground when they're fought because these things are flying. And that the pilots are instructed to shoot themselves. So the president was quite chagrined when he showed up on Soviet TV. The pilot did because he'd failed to shoot himself. (laughs) I can only imagine. That's just not a good plan. I mean, it it worked for the Japanese, I guess, at the end of World War II with the kamikazes. Uh, I mean, that right. must be, that's uh, just company loyalty. That mu- they must have a good benefits program, good PTO or something. Like, but you don't get it. <laughs> I mean, what kind of, pro- you know, it's just not a good, anytime you're counting on someone to kill themselves, it's a bad plan. I mean, yeah, the Nazis did it because they knew they were going to get hung. But to say, no, we're not going to put an ejector seat <laughs> yeah. in here. We're giving you a pistol and just shoot you. You don't get a parachute, you get a pistol. Yeah, golden pistol. That's a bad plan. Yeah. Um, so, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to distract you there. No, just, that's uh, funny. I, I did not always know always thought that was funny. No, just don't worry, Mr. Mr. President. He will shoot himself. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. It reminds me of, uh, you know, Arrested Development. Yeah. How Ron Howard does the yeah. Uh, yeah. narration. And you have a guy talking to the president and saying, don't worry, the plane will self-destruct as it hits, and the pilot will shoot himself. And then you have Ron Howard come in and say, the plane didn't self-destruct, and he did not shoot himself. Or the Curb, the curb, uh, curb Your Enthusiasm music. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Oh, while he's in a so, Russian prison. That's just a little aside that I always thought was amusing about the Gary Powers. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for that. Uh, let's get back to the trail. <laughs> okay. Jim Wilcott, the CIA financial officer, actually provides more information about Oswald. Apparently, Oswald was very angry and upset with the CIA in general because he believes that his cover was blown the whole time. And when he got to Russia, no one took him seriously because they felt it was so fucking obvious that he was bait. They apparently were a little more cynical about Oswald, a guy who's supposedly allowed to live after announcing to the American embassy that he's going to sell crypto clearance military secrets. So he wasn't really able to establish any meaningful relationship with the Russians that would have allowed him to be a double agent because he felt he was set up to fail from the beginning. Now... This anger that Oswald had at the CIA would explain why in the 70s, the Church Commission unearthed that James Angleton, the notoriously skeptical and paranoid head of the CIA's counterintelligence division, had a file reserved on Oswald three years before the assassination. This would be a file 
as confirmed by CIA employees in the testimony presented to the to the uh, commission that this file would only have been opened for assets and agents that the agency had begun to develop suspicion for. So they they were keeping this file on Oswald likely because they because he was so angry at them they did they weren't sure how far they could trust him. So this again is further evidence that confirms that Oswald was to some extent a CIA agent because the counterintelligence division only operates only works to prevent double agents. It's basically the defensive aspect of intelligence. So these guys were checking themselves. They're kind of the internal investigations of the CIA to make sure that they don't have any double agents. So this file would only be opened on active employees or agents of the CIA. And again, this was confirmed in testimony to the Frank Commission, in, or I'm sorry, the Church Commission in the 70s. Okay. Now, I'm going to drop a bombshell here. Okay. You remember George DeMorenschild, the Russian baron? Mm-hmm. He testifies, well, he tries to testify, we'll see how that goes. He admits to having done various favors and consultations for the CIA in the past in Yugoslavia. He would do geological surveys for them to basically give them a rundown on the natural resources in various Eastern European countries that the CIA might be interested in taking from the Soviets, whatever they were going to do. Morenschild confirms that the CIA's J. Walton Moore asked Morenschild to meet up with Lee, an ex-Marine who was in Minsk, in Minsk at the time, where George Morenschild actually grew up. He's paid 250000 and told to watch Lee and make, help him settle in Dallas. In exchange with, in addition to the money, he set up with a, an, a, that oil exploration deal that he got in Haiti, which only would have been brokered through the help of the embassy after being pressured by the CIA. The Morenschilds, after Oswald is killed, insist that Oswald was set up and that there was no way that he was, uh, he actually shot Kennedy. In 1977, an investigator for the House Select Committee on Assassinations leaves a card at his house, the Morenschilds' house, asking him to testify to the committee about his known, now-confessed link with the CIA. The very next day, George is found dead in his home by a shotgun blast, which is ruled as a suicide, and everybody shuts the fuck up about it. This is kind of the first in a long list of people that show up dead right before they're about to reveal something to a House Select Committee. Oh, this is, this is like the Clinton list. Yeah. All the people. That, <laughs> it's like crossing... It, being involved in the JFK assassination is like crossing Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Everybody ends up dead. No, and it's actually funny, Everybody you know, it's, it's surprising that we get as many witnesses that come forward as we do, because imagine all of the people that did see something that never said anything, because they knew that, they, knew they could end up dead. So if we, if we have the dozens and dozens of witnesses that, that have already come forward with information that contradicts the Warren Commission, imagine how many people there are that that don't say anything. I mean, imagine there are more people that saw something that wouldn't say anything than people that would have the courage to come forward. Right. Um, right. I just, sorry, go ahead. So go ahead. No, I'm just listening. I'm, I'm rather shaken. I'm sorry. I'm sorry so to do far. this to you, man. I'm just, I got to open You're your shaking eyes. shaking me all the way to my foundations. <laughs> I mean, my beliefs in, in the U.S. telling us what really happened is, it's starting to scare me. Yeah. So, uh, so now that we've affirmed that the first guy that Lee 
Oswald meets in the United States was himself, now a murdered CIA asset. Remember, Oswald oddly picks up and leaves for New Orleans where he gets a job with Guy Bannister, the, the head of the detective agency. Turns out that that's not really so much of a private detective agency as it is an extension of the intelligence branch in New Orleans. Right. Guy Bannister was basically a bagman and gunrunner for the CIA, and he actually ran and provided weapons to Alpha 66, which was the team run by David Atlee Phillips that was attacking Cuban boats to try to provoke them into a war with America and embarrass Kennedy, if you remember him. He actually mm-hmm. himself supplied munitions for the Bay of Pigs invasion. Bannister's secretary was actually alarmed by Oswald at the time because outside of the building he was doing all these vocal pro-Castro demonstrations, and (laughs) Bannister tells her not to worry, he's acting undercover. She later testifies to this information. So Guy Bannister, the guy that Oswald, again, is just lucky enough to run into and get hooked up with a job, is a CIA agent who actively worked to thwart Kennedy's foreign policy at every instance. Again. Maybe just a crazy coincidence. I, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess just call me skeptical. Interestingly enough, if you remember, Oswald was arrested in New Orleans after an angry demonstration. He requests a meeting with FBI Special Agent John Quigley while he's in police custody, and for some reason he's granted that. An odd thing to do if you are a pro-communist activist under arrest is to request the presence of the FBI. I've never done that. You know, we've had our run-ins. I would never ask, while in the custody of police, if they could just turn up the heat a little bit, let's bring the FBI in here. (laughs) Why not? Fuck it. You guys, you guys aren't doing this. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know who I am? (laughs) Local police, my ass. I want the FBI in here. So thanks to the church committee, it's revealed in 1977 that the Warren Commission had buried info that was proving that Oswald was on the FBI payroll as well as an informant. So this guy was dipping his toes all over the place. He was being paid by both the CIA and the FBI before he was primed as the lone gunman crazy assassin of a president. Right. Again, pretty remarkable coincidences. One thing that James Douglas speculates on, I think this is probably the most speculative claim he makes in the book, is that at this point, Oswald might have been actually actively trying to stop the assassination of Kennedy by meeting with the FBI and providing information on some of the people that he was working with. Again, I don't know how much evidence I've seen for that. I think it's possible that Oswald at some point might have realized that he had been possibly set up as a patsy after realizing that the CIA knew he was upset with them. But I don't want to say that because, again, we don't have the evidence and I don't want to make that speculation. But it would be incredibly ironic if the guy who supposedly killed Kennedy was actively trying to stop it. Now we go back to some of the problems of, Warren, uh, of the transcripts and photographs of Oswald meeting with the KGB terrorist Valerie Kostikov. The FBI looks into it. And they gather the transcriptions of the call and the photos from Oswald in Mexico City, and they realize that very obviously they do not match Oswald. They don't look like Oswald, his voice doesn't match, and the supposed guy who is Oswald is speaking in broken Russian, which makes no sense because Oswald was fluent in Russian. So it would be odd if all of a sudden he forgot how to speak Russian while he's at the Soviet consulate in Mexico City. They have to basically bury this information, the CIA and the FBI, because it indicates that some of the evidence they were using to establish Oswald's guilt 
would fall apart under scrutiny, so they actually buried this, and the Warren Commission completely ignored it. Interestingly enough, it's later found out that the night before Oswald went to the embassy in Mexico City, an FBI agent, Marvin Giesling, disabled a flash alarm that would have basically alerted all other agencies of Oswald when anything at all show up, showed up from Oswald. So they had this alarm set up after Oswald's de- defection to basically keep an eye on him, and if anybody gathered any intelligence about Oswald at all, it would be leaked to all other services of government, like the FBI, the CIA, to basically tell them to keep an eye out. Again, oddly enough, for some reason, that FBI agent disabled that alarm the day before the CIA received intelligence, which would have sent it off. The reasoning being that, to a cynical mind, that if the alerts had been sent to the FBI or the other agencies, Oswald would not have been able to kill the president. He would have been arrested. He would have been detained. So the CIA actively blocked that information to getting to other agencies so that they could allow Oswald to carry out his deeds. That seems to me to be a logical conclusion if you believe that the CIA was using Oswald as a patsy to kill the president. Another interesting fact, I don't want to get too deep in the water here, but somehow they also found that in Mexico City, before you go to the uh, embassy there, as an American, you had to get a tourist card at the, uh, at the embassy in Mexico City. They find that the guy in head in line of this supposed Oswald got a tourist card. His name was William Gaudet, a known CIA agent. There were no records of the card holder. They tried to track it down to get an idea of if Oswald was with anyone, and for some reason the records of the card holder were hidden until it was declassified in 1975 and realized as revealed to be William Gaudet. So again, this is another instance where Oswald just shows up and he happens to walk right in behind the line of the one fucking CIA agent getting a tourist card in Mexico City. This motherfucker's like Forrest Gump. Yeah. Every time something important's happening, there's Oswald. Well, you know, and the funny thing, too, is it's made me think that it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the Warren Commission is entirely right. And that would scare the shit out of me because it would lead me to believe that everybody in my fucking life is probably CIA. Well, that's... You don't know. You don't know, Ty. <laughs> so for the sake of my sanity, I have to believe that that this is all CIA, or else I think we're fucked. Yeah, right. Or we're just so incompetent that, you know, anybody could have killed Kennedy back <laughs> Right. <then>. right. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just so incompetent that we, you know, nobody, nobody, fuck, what are the nuclear codes? I wrote them down. I, you know, I had them on a fucking Outback Steakhouse receipt. Right. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> Okay. All right. So but I digress. Some some more things that the CIA and FBI have to ignore and bury the evidence that they were supposedly using to incriminate Oswald was that certain witnesses, you know, that saw Oswald acting erratically all over the place, uh, their claims don't match up because Oswald is, according to the CIA and the surveillance, he's supposed to be in Mexico City while he's also at a gun range and trying to charter a plane. Another thing is, Oswald didn't know how to drive, so he couldn't have test-driven the car that he supposedly tried to buy until 
saying that he needed to get more money from Russia before he could buy it. So at this point, it becomes incredibly apparent that there are multiple Oswalds walking around. Unless he can be, you know, unless there's some kind of Dr. Manhattan thing that he has where he can warp all over the place, I think it's pretty difficult to ignore the discrepancies in the fact that Oswald seems to have someone impersonating him. This goes back to your claim about the alibis. It seems like they wanted someone claiming to be Oswald to be identifiable by witnesses who would remember him for acting crazy after the assassination. Right. The only problem is, in the CIA's incompetence, they did not communicate or realize all of the alibis they were setting up at various places all over the world that would contradict each other <laughs> if tried to use right. in any other evidence. There's like 35 Oswalds all of a sudden. Yeah, and you know, it's really funny. J. Edgar Hoover was very upset about it, and he knew he couldn't do anything. He couldn't, he couldn't really go over the CIA, but he knew that the CIA had set something up and said that basically there was an Oswald impersonator, and he told LBJ once he took office that you're going to have to bury this because we can't implicate the Russians in Cuba and then have it revealed that these were setups. So essentially, the CIA, once the president was assassinated, they had been setting up all these convenient ways to possibly scapegoat Cuba and Russia so that when it went down, they could pick whoever they wanted to blame cherry-picking the evidence, but because they were so unorganized about it and they couldn't, afford, they couldn't really make the case, they decided to run with the fact that, well, he was just a lone crazy gunman, because we can't implicate Cuba and Russia and go into a war if it's going to be so easy to find out that these things were done by an impersonator. All right. <laughs> Where are we now? Okay, so do you remember Ruth and Michael Payne, the people that also fell in love do. with... Uh, with Marina and Lee and actually graciously invited them into staying at their homes. Well, it turns out that Michael Payne had two parents who were themselves very tied into the intelligence agency. Michael Payne's mother was good friends with Mary Bancroft, who was herself a spy and mistress of Alan Dulles. Again, the return of the criminal mastermind. Ruth's father also worked for AID, which as we've talked about, I think in previous episodes, is a front for the CIA. It's basically a way for them to establish a presence in areas across the world to monitor them under the guise of international development, charities, or whatever. But everyone knew, especially now everyone knows at this point, that that organization was almost entirely just a front for the CIA. Ruth Payne's sister is revealed to be a CIA employee. And remember, if you recall, Ruth Payne is the girl that got Oswald the job at the book depository. Right. Again, just... Where Kennedy was going to be driving right by. Yes. <laughs> Series of remarkable coincidences. And keep in mind, I'm actually... I trimmed pages and pages and pages of notes from this. So, you know, this seems overwhelming. Maybe I'm kind of beating a dead horse here. You're getting bored. You're thinking, okay, we're just going to reveal everyone's CIA. I actually... I'm, I'm being... I'm I'm limiting a lot of this, so you know I, we're we're going. You're trying to not go with overkill. No, here. I'm not, and it's almost difficult to. And this is kind of points to why, you know, what I've said of all the things when you say something like, "Well, the CIA killed JFK," and people look at you weird. It's so frustrating because it's just they did a horrible fucking job of covering this up. Anyway, we're getting to I think probably my favorite part of this story, and I, I, you know this guy, Richard Case Nagel. Oh, I love him, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I love this guy. Um, and, it, you know, and I believe all this stuff. 
if you get one true nut job in here, it's him. Yeah, you, you, you know, know I, mean? I don't know too much about him other than this next encounter that we're going to describe, but I can imagine he's, he must be a pretty fucking loony, loony guy. But I can take him at his word, as we'll see. Well, he, took, he, 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 had, a, he had a pretty wicked head injury. <laughs> they got him disabled out of the military. And he got a 60% disability. Now, he was always pissed off because he thought he should get more. Um, but, but, yeah, his doctors in the military <laughs> said he was he's a wee bit of a loon. But the CIA was good enough for them. Oh, it, was, it could have so, turned out a lot worse for him, because as we'll see. So um, yeah. Richard Case Nagel turns up in a bank a few weeks before the assassination. He fires three shots in the air and goes and sits in his car and waits <laughs> to be arrested. Um, when he's yeah. arrested, he tells them that he'd rather go to jail for firing a gun in a bank than treason and murder. He warns the FBI that Oswald is going to kill Kennedy and that he himself was hired by the KGB to kill Oswald before he can kill the president. We've talked about how, you know, you've said Nagel is a loony guy, but all of these claims are verified. Nagel was actually a counterintelligence agent, again, like what we were talking before. He worked for the CIA and was actually successfully recruited by the Soviets as a double agent. And ironically enough, the, C- the CIA, or I'm sorry, the KGB, like Nagel said, attempted, basically told them to either get Os- convince Oswald that he's going to be a patsy or kill Oswald before he's able to kill the president. So here you have an instance of the actual KGB doing more than the CIA to save the president's life. Nagel actually admits to having worked with Oswald on several occasions linked to that operation that Victor Marchetti talked about. Apparently they were part of the same counterintelligence double agent operation. He realized before Oswald that Oswald was being set up by what he said were the two Alpha 66 leaders, which he identified as Angel and Leopoldo. These were agents, again, that worked with David Atlee Phillips' crew to disrupt Cuba. This actually matches testimony that witnesses say later when they identify Lee Oswald with two large Cuban men that fit the descriptions of Leopold and Angel. I actually believe there's a pretty good case that one of those guys were likely the, the ones to pull the trigger on Kennedy. But again, we don't, have any, we don't really have any definite answers, so I'm not going to say that. Going back to Nagel, Nagel sends, sends the letter to the FBI that Oswald and his associates were planning on to killing the president on September 17th. That's when he sent the letters. Years later, Nagel serves four years in jail, and he doesn't really talk after that. Years later, the Assassinations Review Board send a letter to Nagel requesting access to documents that prove his knowledge of the plot and prove copies, to, to gather copies of the letter to prove that he had sent it to the FBI ahead of time. He says he, he actually dies the next day of a heart attack <laughs> before they are able to, to get anything. But Nagel did tell his son that there was a purple briefcase that contained all of the documents he would need and that if anything, I don't know if he said specifically, if anything happened to me, this is where you'll find it. After Nagel's death, his son goes, drives to his house in Arizona and finds that his house is ransacked and the briefcase with all the documents is gone. Here we have another dead guy the day before revealing possibly bombshell information, which would destroy the credibility of the Warren Commission. 
that is actually the one thing that they were actually competent at was protecting the Warren Commission report. Yeah, well, they were actually, they would just fuck everything up and then be like, oh, well, just fucking kill him, I guess. <laughs> just kill him. Yeah. Fuck it. Just kill him. Which has got to be frustrating if you're the kind of, you know, I imagine there's guys that come up with all the plans and they're, you know, these masterminds, Rube Goldberg machines, and they're so excited to see all this stuff work. And then <laughs> yeah. these kind of henchmen, brutish guys in the field fuck it all up. And yeah. they're just like, well, I shot him. Kill him. I actually just shot him instead. I shot him. I- <laughs> Yeah. I know we were gonna do the fake mustache thing, but I just I just killed him. Yeah. <laughs> I just shot him. It's generally the most effective. I mean, you have to give him that. Yeah. All right, we're getting close. We're getting close here. I want to wrap this up with a few more pretty interesting facts. If you okay. if you remember uh, the 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 curtain rods, how the Warren Commission accepted that that Oswald got the curtain rods in by a testimony that the his coworker actually saw him bring it in with a ride that he gave him. Right. This contradicts right. a fact that a guy named Ralph Yates picked up Oswald hitchhiking, who asks how easy he thinks it would be to murder the president from a building. Ralph Yates just thinks at the time, these are just weird questions, maybe he's just a weird guy speculating about things. At the time, Ralph Yates says he drops off Oswald outside of the book's de- depository, outside of work hours, where he is delivering a brown paper bag of curtain rods. After the assassination, Yates reports this to the FBI. He says, I picked him up, uh, describes everything to a T, and he passes the polygraph tests, which complicate the Warren Commission's case. And again, it seems like such a mundane thing, but this, this fact that this guy passes a polygraph test saying he's picking up Oswald again, indicates that there is a double going around, and they can't accept that because it would contradict the fact that this coworker testified to picking up Lee, and there would be no reason for the coworker to lie, and especially when he specifically mentioned the brown paper bags, why would he even know about that? Instead of investigating this further, the FBI says the only reason Yates passes the polygraph test is because he's so insane he believes it to be true. (laughs) He believes what he said. Um, Yates is committed to a mental hospital for 11 years. You have two brothers that could do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, So they send him to a mental hospital where he's committed for 11 years, escapes once, fearing for his life. He meets up with his wife, telling her that they're gonna kill him for what he knows. His wife... Telling you guys, bros before hoes, his wife turns him back into the mental hospital. <laughs> I guess these 11 years had been great for her, and she just decided, look, yeah. look, Ralph. I, she's collecting his, yeah. he, she's getting a check every month. I'm getting that CIA dick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Yates is electrocuted. He's given uh, brain shocks and drugged with Seroquel, drugged out of his mind until he dies at 39 of congestive heart failure. At the that old natural age for congestive heart failure to really get you. <laughs> yeah, died of old age at thirty nine. The uh, we're gonna get back into the some conflicting testimonies here at the movie theater where Oswald was arrested after he killed Officer J D Tip. The uh, testimonies of movie theater workers and owners. A few people report selling Oswald popcorn at one fifteen p.m. the exact time that Tippett is supposedly murdered. Um. Two witnesses actually see the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald in the back of the theater rather than the front, where everyone says he was arrested, where the the photograph was taken, and 
they spend years believing they witnessed the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald until they realized that Oswald was in the front of the theater where the arrest was taking place, and they were in the back looking at the back door. There's actually two separate police reports that are released by the Dallas police who probably had no idea at the time. There was probably a lot of confusion. I believe it appears that Dallas officers both believed they had Oswald at the time. There's two police reports, one that reports he was arrested outside the back of the theater, and another report that reports he was arrested in the front of the theater. While Oswald, the real Oswald, is in custody at the Dallas Police Department, a mechanic witnesses an Oswald lookalike in the parking lot, and he takes his license plate down because, unbeknownst to him, he doesn't know that Lee Harvey Oswald is in custody. He believes they were told to watch out for suspicious characters. It's not like the internet. He's not seeing anything on TV. And he sees the guy that looks exactly like... uh, He sees a suspicious-looking guy who appears to be hiding, and he takes his license plate number down. He reports this license plate number to an investigative reporter. That license plate number is traced to CIA contractor Carl Amos Mather, who very weirdly is also good friends with the officer J.D. Tippett who was just murdered. They really scratched their heads figuring out why a Lee Harvey Oswald imposter would, have, would be driving the car of the CIA contractor. Carl Mathers refuses to speak to the FBI, and he doesn't have to because he has CIA clearance. Fifteen years later, he gives an interview to the House Select Committee saying, first asking for immunity so they can't prosecute him, and then all he says is that it must have been a mistake and they just wrote the license plate down. <laughs> Wrong. Um, yeah. Oh, a little clerical error there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Again, just another thing that just every fucking, everywhere you go in Dallas is a CIA agent. (laughs) And everywhere you go in Dallas is fucking Oswald. Right, right. Can't swing a fucking dead cat without hitting Lee Harvey Oswald. I know it seems, I think the Oswald double theory is very hard for people to believe because you just, you'd have to. It's hard for people to believe until you get into... The fact that they were trying to fucking blow Castro up with exploding cigars. Right, right, exactly. That- you know, you'd think, no, the CIA would never do some shit like that. No, dude, they gave him a fucking scuba suit that we, I think we covered yeah. that. That was going to kill him. Right. If you put it on, you know, I mean, it's, they did crazy shit. So a double, two Oswalds, three Oswalds? No, that's not. That's not straining credibility. Apparently he was a different height, but he did look remarkably like Oswald to the point where people could easily mistake him from a photograph. I like to think that the CIA guys were sitting around figuring out how to do it, and they just saw this guy in the cafeteria, and they're just like, you know <laughs> yeah. what? Fuck, that guy. You would have worked. You know who looks a lot like Lee? <laughs> And just the you know, fact that I was just thinking. you have him just so bombastically and over the top announcing himself as a, a suspicious figure all over the place. It's just, again, it's just a little obvious yeah. and, and they're not. And nobody arresting him, nobody picking him up, nobody dragging him in, nobody waterboarding. Right, right. Some, some further evidence to kind of back this up. Um, coincidentally, there was an Air Force Sergeant, Robert Vincent, who takes a flight to Washington, D.C., um, the day, I, th- I think it was the day in between the assassination, to confront his boss about not getting a promotion. Um, he witnesses a, the liaison between Congress and Pentagon. I'm sorry, this was before the assassination. He witnesses the liaison between the Congress and the Pentagon urging Kennedy to cancel the Dallas trip. He doesn't really think of anything of it. 
and he wants he waits to hitch a ride to Colorado Springs from DC after confronting his boss, but there's no flights until there's a f- a plane that shows up, an unmarked plane. It has no military markings, and whoever's at the airport say, "Oh, actually, this plane is going to Colorado Springs," and they let him ride onto it. While he's on the plane, he witnesses someone who looks remarkably like Lee Harvey Oswald and two husky uh, Latino figures that have been described as Angel and Leopoldo. I'm sorry, one Latino figure um, whose description matches either Leopoldo or Angel. Um, The flight instead lands in Roswell Air Base, uh, and Vincent has to get his own ride to Colorado Springs. His family and neighbors are questioned by the FBI after it's revealed that his presence, that he was on that plane, and he's ordered to sign a secrecy agreement. Vincent is then forced to work for the CIA at Roswell. They basically tell him, you have to. They don't even give him a job offer. They say, you have to. And then 30 years later, after the passing of the JFK Records Act, he finally reveals, feeling safe at this point, and his secrecy agreement had expired, that he had seen the man who supposedly was Oswald escaping D.C. on a flight that, on a flight on an unmarked plane, which he later finds out while he's working through the CIA, is the markings of a CIA plane. The, the specific marking that they had, they had this like globe symbol that he's later realizes is a CIA symbol. So it appears that they, someone arrested the Oswald double and then a higher up told them, that's not the guy, you can release him. That's the wrong guy. He gets on a CIA plane where he's whipped out of there, whipped out of Dallas. Okay. Um, I, I think I want to end the episode on this. I don't think we're going to get to Jack Ruby. You made a pretty compelling case, so let's wrap this no, up. No, one more thing. One more thing. Uh, okay. Do you remember in the Warren Commission, um, the, uh, he tries to make a call that no one answers? Yes. While he's in police custody. That right. number is traced to counterintelligence agent John Hurt, who is based out of a North Carolina base, which is known for agents who had been sent as fake expatriates to the Soviet Union. John Hurt never accepts the call, and later Victor Marchetti, that disillusioned CIA agent who wrote the book, explains that basically this is Oswald attempting to reach what he calls a cutout intermediary. It's when you're worried that your cover is going to be blown or that you've lost track of any of your handlers, so you're going to call a clean intermediary who has no involvement in the operation to communicate to someone that you're here, maybe you're being set up as a patsy, maybe something that go- has gone wrong, but it's basically to protect yourself and to reveal something to someone who wouldn't know anything in, in the interest of your safety, if that makes sense. John Hurt ignored the call. He did not text back. He said, wrong number, who dis? <laughs> <laughs> um and then like we well, said he's he, he, oswald is killed leaving the, the uh leaving the dallas police department by jack ruby who i think we'll get to in the next episode okay so to sum all this up what we've got is we've got oswald running all over saying i love castro i'm anti-american fuck you america and nobody really looking into this too closely no and keep in mind he which is leading us to believe that he's probably he's probably well not probably he's working for the cia the only way that you could do this is to be working for the cia it's the only way that they would allow it absolutely he's protected and yeah he's protected and you have two people 
doing this. Right. And they're doing it at times in different places at the same time. Yes, very haphazardly. They really didn't um, organize. It didn't seem to be that whoever was running the double operation was in very good surveillance of Oswald. I mean, I I don't believe that Oswald... I I think it's difficult to know if Oswald himself knew about the double. I think if he did, he probably would have suspected he was a patsy a lot (laughs) earlier than he did. Oh, that's weird. Okay, (laughs) I don't ask any questions. He would have known about the double if he had a really hot wife. (laughs) He came home and found a double with his wife. (laughs) She wasn't really all that much. She was a mean Russian woman. I, I actually, I think Marina was a nice lady. I imagine her as a nice lady. I'm going to keep it that way. I imagine her as a fairly nice lady, too. She, she, I, you know, Oswald might have been a good guy. We'll never know. Yeah, you know, he might have been a guy you go out and have a couple vodkas with or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but so the, that's basically the summary of this episode is that there are two Oswalds running around, uh, Making as much noise as they can, saying, I'm a communist, I'm a communist, go Castro, go Castro. While at the same time, running into every single CIA agent in Dallas <laughs> and right. New Orleans. In yeah, Mexico in Dallas City. and New Orleans, yeah. We are going to come back next week, or within the next couple weeks, and give you more information as to uh, how this played out. And again, these aren't speculations, these aren't things you have made up. These are all things that have been documented. Correct. So in, in two weeks, within the next two weeks, we will have some stuff on Jack Ruby and some other things. What are we going to talk about then? We're going to talk about Jack Ruby, some of his suspicious connections, uh, and also how the fuck they managed to find the back of Kennedy's skull in the street days after the <laughs> autopsy revealed a fully intact skull. <laughs> Right. Which has been another yeah. glaring question that the Warren Commission can entirely ignores. Well, yeah, he had a fully intact skull, but you see from the Zapruder film, Jackie Kennedy crawling out the back of the car to try oh, to Oh, yeah, part yeah. Of it up. She was trying to pick up his brain. She so. reported seeing his skull flying. But yeah, we'll get into that next time. I think that's some of the more gruesome uh, aspects of the Kennedy assassination. Okay, well, until next time, thank you for listening to Limited Hangout with... Uh... With the hawk and uh, signing off, baby eagle. Yeah, if you if you like the show, look on i get on iTunes if you're listening and and say give us a positive review. We're a new show; it can't hurt. If you don't like the show and you give us a bad review, we know a lot about computers. We will hunt your ass down. And I'm old; I got all kinds of time and nothing else to do. I, well, no, I'm gonna be older. Soon I'm not today. gonna incriminate myself. By, by commenting on that. Well, I, no, I'm just saying, don't do it. It's he doesn't just, have a lot to lose It's at one this of point. those, I don't. Literally, I said this to Timmy at work the other day. If they gave me a life sentence, what's that? Like 30 years? <laughs> you know, I mean, when you get my age, a life sentence isn't what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, the fuck? So anyway, we'll end it on that note. And thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye.